The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Well, let me say again what a great pleasure it has been for me to be with you this weekend. And it is a great privilege to be able to bring God's Word to you once again this evening. We're going to be looking at some words of the Lord Jesus in Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. But I want to begin with reading some words in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. So please turn there first of all, Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, and we'll read verses 9 to 11. Here is something that belongs to the beginning of our Savior's public ministry, and then we'll turn in Mark 15 to something that belongs to the end of that ministry. Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, reading verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And now over, please, to Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 33 and 34. And here we are at the cross of Calvary. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it is this terrible word, this unfathomable word, forsaken, that is especially going to be occupying our thoughts for a little this evening, forsaken, Jesus forsaken by God. The word itself is all about leaving, abandoning, turning away from. And in the course of his earthly ministry, our Lord Jesus had plenty experience of it. Forsakenness was not something to which our Lord was a stranger. I think, for example, of the people of Nazareth. Luke tells us that during his Nazareth years, he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He was respected and liked by the citizens of Nazareth. But when he left to take up his public ministry and then came back to preach to them, everything changed. They took offense at him. They turned away from him. They would have nothing more to do with him. They even sought to kill him. And then there were the disciples of whom we read in John's Gospel, chapter 6, men and women who had been his followers. 
And then, like the people of Nazareth, they took offense at his teaching. And John tells us that after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And then there are the Jews of whom we read in John's Gospel, chapter 8. John tells us that many believed in him, but their faith was a very temporary kind of faith indeed. For like the people of Nazareth and the disciples of John, chapter 6, they heard things from Jesus' lips that greatly offended them. And the narrative ends with these so-called believers picking up stones to stone him. And then there's Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, and you know what he did. He not only turned away from the Lord Jesus, he gave him up into the hands of his enemies. And then finally, the other eleven, who though in their hearts remaining loyal to him and, and loving him uninterruptedly, yet in the garden of Gethsemane, all forsook him. And fled. Now, you put all of that together. Forsakenness was not something new to the Lord Jesus. In different ways, it was something with which he was only too familiar. But this was different. This was something new. Up until now, it had only ever been people who had forsaken him. But now on the cross of Calvary, amidst the darkness that enveloped him, <clears throat> something to which he had up until now been an utter stranger happens. He is forsaken of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now there is only so much that we can say about this. You're standing at the entrance to a cave, and you can see a little way in, but the light fails very rapidly. And so, with this, at the time, as we shall see, it was a mystery to the Lord Jesus. How much more to us? Nevertheless, there are some things that we can say, and by the blessing of God, it will be to our spiritual prophet. We are on holy ground, but we pray the Lord to help us and to bless his word to us. How are we going to approach it? Well, very simply and straightforwardly, we're going to think in the first place about what God forsaking Jesus did not mean, and then we're going to try at least a little to grapple with what it did mean. Then I will endeavor to close by drawing out some points of application. Well, let's think in the first place about what God forsaking him did not mean. And to help us, we're going to begin by listening to another voice, a voice that we have just heard in the first part of our scripture reading, the Father's voice, as Jesus heard it at his baptism. Mark chapter 1, verse 11, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Father is addressing him from heaven. 
And he calls him his son. And he tells him that he loves him. And he assures him that he is well pleased with him. And then we come to Calvary and listen to Jesus speaking now to him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Two voices, the voice of the Father and the voice of the Son, and they seem to clash. I think of that word dissonance. It's a musical term. It's used when notes clash. If notes are dissonant, says one dictionary, they are harsh-sounding, unmelodious, jarring. And that is how it seems as we listen to these two cries, the one that comes from heaven and the one that rises to heaven, dissonant. At his baptism, the voice of the Father is heard declaring that this is his son, his beloved son, with whom he is well pleased. But at the cross, when it is Jesus' voice that we hear, it seems to be out of all harmony with that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The voices seem to clash. And as you ponder them, you wonder what has happened to the sonship and the love and the good pleasure. Have they all gone? The language of Jesus' cry would suggest that they have all gone, but the reality is far different. There is a way in which these two voices can be harmonized. And here is how. By noting four things that haven't gone. First of all, the sonship hasn't gone. In this terrible cry from the darkness, our Lord doesn't use the name Father. But that is not because his Father has disowned him. This is the fourth of what we refer to as the seven sayings of our Lord from the cross. You remember the first, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What about the last, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He addresses God as his Father at the beginning of the experience, and he addresses him as Father at the end. And at no point in between these two does the Father-Son relationship cease. Amidst the darkness of Calvary, Jesus is still God's Son. This, as Paul puts it, is the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. This is God not sparing his own Son, but delivering him up for us all. Whatever the reason may have been for Jesus not addressing God as Father in this cry of anguish, it is not because he wasn't. The Father-Son relationship is an eternal relationship. It belongs to the very being of our triune God, and Calvary has not interrupted that, not for an instant. So the sonship hasn't gone. 
What about the love? This is my beloved son. The father loved him at his baptism. What about now? About the darkness of Calvary. Has the love now gone? The word most certainly has not. It has no more gone than the sonship. This is still the father's beloved son. God is dealing with him as the representative man. The man who has taken our place and who is bearing our sin. And that involves the terrible experience of God's wrath as our sin is atoned for. And perhaps with that experience of wrath, there is a loss of the sense of God's love. Perhaps that sense of his love is all shriveled up in the heat of the divine anger. But the love itself has not gone. On the contrary, if we may so speak, the Father's heart is bursting with love for his Son. What a hero his Son is to him, drinking this bitter cup to its dregs, doing what is necessary for the salvation of those whom they have jointly chosen to save. The Father loves him for who he is, loves him for what he is doing, though the Son himself, for a little, may be conscious of none of it. So the sonship hasn't gone. The love hasn't gone. And in the third place, as with the sonship and the love, so with the good pleasure. That too is still there just as at his baptism. Indeed, it is greater than ever. Never has the Father been so pleased with his incarnate Son as when he suffers and dies on the cross of Calvary. He's being obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. He's offering himself unspotted to God. In the language of Daniel 9, he's putting an end to sin. He's atoning for iniquity. He's bringing in everlasting righteousness. Pleased with him. There are no words to express it. And how he is about to show it. He is going to take his son's human spirit into his care and keeping in his very presence. And he is going to watch over his son's body to ensure that it is decently wrapped and buried. And he is going to preserve it from any decay. And on the third day, he's going to raise it to life again. And then he's going to exalt his son in his glorified humanity to his right hand. And he's going to give him to be head over all things for the church which is his body. And over the centuries, he's going to draw to him as a gift all those whom he has chosen. And one day, he's going to make his enemies a footstool for his feet. Jesus is the object of his great good pleasure. So the sonship and the love and the good pleasure have not gone. And in the fourth place, 
nor has the Holy Spirit. At his baptism, the Spirit descends on him. We heard that in our first reading. This is the Father anointing him with power and with the Holy Spirit for the work that he has for him to do in the three coming years. And the Spirit does not leave him. He remains upon him all the way through the Calvary ordeal. Hebrews 9 verse 14, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God. Underneath are the everlasting arms. The Spirit who has been resting upon in power from the moment of his baptism is there with him, upholding him enabling him to bear the weight of human sin and the weight of the divine wrath in the frailty of his human nature. Link it with Jesus' assurance in John 16, verse 32, just hours before the cross. He says to his disciples, I am not alone. For the Father is with me. His disciples would leave him alone, and they did, but not the Father. He would be with them, and in and by the Holy Spirit he was, even at the moment of forsakenness. So we're thinking about what God forsaking him did not mean. It did not mean the cancelling or the annulling of anything that was said and done at his baptism. No, the sonship hasn't gone. The love hasn't gone. The good pleasure hasn't gone. The Holy Spirit hasn't gone. They are all still there just as before. And that helps us to hear these two cries differently. The dissonance has considerably lessened, hasn't it? Scripture is bringing these two voices into harmony as we ponder what hasn't changed, what is still wonderfully true. But we've only taken the first step there's a second step that we need to take for the harmonizing to be complete. We've thought about what God forsaking him did not mean, but now in the second place, we must think for a little about what God forsaking him did mean. And I say again what I said in my introduction, there is a point beyond which we cannot go and we reach it very quickly. What it meant for Jesus to be forsaken of God is ultimately unfathomable for us. He is standing, as one writer has put it, where none has stood before or since, enduring at one tiny point in space and at one tiny moment of time all that sin deserved, the curse 
in unmitigated concentration. And what that meant for them is for us shrouded in mystery. But there are some things that we can say. First of all, it meant separation. Separation and solitariness. And we have a very striking foreshadowing of this in the events of the Jewish Day of Atonement. We go back to Leviticus chapter 16 where the, the regulations for that day are set down for us. Two male goats were to be brought as a sin offering. One was to be slain. Here's what was to happen to the other. Aaron was to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. And then, carrying the people's sins, it is to be led to a solitary place, and there it is to be left. It fills out the picture for us. How is atonement to be made for the people's sins? One goat is slain. There needs to be a death if sin is to be forgiven. We were thinking about that this morning, weren't we? Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission. But now there is this added element of separation and aloneness. Off it goes to a solitary place bearing the sins of the people. And there it is left, alone. Take it as a glimpse of Calvary. At Calvary, in the language of John the Baptist, the Lamb of God is bearing away the sin of the world. He's putting a distance between the world and its sin, and He is doing so by bearing that sin Himself. Where is He going with it? Where is he taking it? To a solitary place. A place where he is alone. Cut off not merely from his fellow human beings from whom the darkness has hidden him, but above all and most terrible of all, from the God who all along has been with him. Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? And he does so because it has happened. In a sense that is beyond our power to fathom, he now finds himself separated from God, abandoned by him, alone. There's a sermon by George H. Morrison of Glasgow called the loneliness of sin. It's based on some words in John's Gospel, chapter 13, where it is said of Judas Iscariot, he went immediately out and it was night. And in the course of his sermon, Dr. Morrison speaks about three separations for which sin is responsible. It separates us, he says, from our ideal, the person that we wish that we could be. It separates man from man, person from person. 
and most solemnly of all, it separates from God. And that's what we are seeing illustrated in the goat of removal, the scapegoat. And that is what we are seeing at the cross. There is a terrible inevitability about it. He can't be the sin bearer without the sin that he is bearing separating him from God, without God leaving him alone. It's the price that had to be paid for atonement. It meant separation. Secondly, it meant bewilderment. Bewilderment. And here we come to the form of the cry. This is not a statement of fact. My God, my God, you have forsaken me. It's an agonizing question. Why have you forsaken me? And I have to confess that over the years, this has always been the thing that is most perplexing for me about this cry, how perplexing the whole experience was to the Son of God. Because we are not to suppose that he's playing with words, expressing what he's not actually feeling. Had there been no why in his heart and mind, there would have been no why in his cry. These words, as you know, are from Psalm 22. They were originally David's words and were an expression of his perplexity. There was something that he could not understand, why God had abandoned him. And Jesus takes this question and uses it because it gives exact expression to where he is himself. It is a mystery to him why God has forsaken him. There is an ancient German writer by the name of Rambach who writes as following. He writes about the deity suspending his blissful operations on Christ's understanding, permitting all the power of the devil to assault him. There were things that in his humanity our Savior did not know. Things that were withheld from his human mind by the Father who taught him every day. And now, at the climax of his suffering, there is something else that is withheld. As the atoning work comes to its completion, and that is the very understanding of why all of this is happening. It is a mystery to his human mind. Can you understand that? I can't. Who can? So we're asking what this experience of for forsakenness did mean. It meant separation. And we're at a loss to fathom that. And it meant bewilderment. He cries out, why? And thirdly, very clearly, it meant indescribable anguish. 
We go back to his baptism and the assurance that the Father is well pleased with him. And that, as we have seen, was as true at the cross of Calvary as it was at his baptism. But as he suffers and dies on the cross of Calvary, it is not the pleasure of God that is felt, but his displeasure. His hot displeasure. And along with the felt displeasure, the felt absence of God. Never in all of history was there a man who had walked more closely with God than the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the sinless one. He was the eternal Son. With his loving Father, he had enjoyed a deeper intimacy, a richer communion than anyone on earth had ever experienced. And now the Father has gone. Not in an absolute sense. His bond with the eternal Father is still intact. And so too with the Spirit of God. But as the sin-bearer, he's now experiencing the absence of God. And it is in these profound changes, these profound ex-changes, that we glimpse the anguish of his experience. The felt pleasure of God has been exchanged for the felt displeasure. The felt presence of God has been exchanged for the felt absence of God. And along with that, a clear understanding of it all has been exchanged for painful bewilderment. All of this taken together amounts to an anguish that it is impossible for us to fathom. So we've spent some moments this evening thinking about what God forsaking him did not mean. And we've had at least a little glimpse of something of what it did mean. In the final part of this message, there are three distinct lights in which I want us to view Jesus because of all of this. And in the first place, I want you to view him as our sympathizer. Our sympathizer. He has been called the God of the question, why? So often, the question that is on our own lips. What David does in Psalm 22, myriads of saints have done ever since. They have cried out, why? And they have done so in anguish and perplexity. Sometimes in relation to this very matter of forsakenness, that's where David was. Why have you forsaken me? He felt that God had left him, left him to his enemies. He cried to heaven, and heaven was silent, and it went on day after day, night after night. No comforting word from the Lord, no movement to effect his deliverance, nothing. And it leaves David feeling abandoned. Now we know that the Lord hadn't abandoned him. 
And eventually the Lord came, as he always does. But at the time, how hard it was. How hard it always is. How painfully perplexing. And again and again and again, the cry goes up to heaven. Why? Is that where you are tonight? Is that your cry? There is a Savior in heaven who sympathizes with you. It is where he has been. Now we know that in his case, the abandonment was more than a feeling. For him, in a sense that we, we cannot grasp, it was a reality, but it wasn't less than a feeling. It was something deeply felt. And he remembers it. And he feels for his people in their pain. You may have a fellow Christian who struggles to sympathize with you, who may be even shocked at your lack of faith as they think it, and be troubled that you should be crying out, why? There is a Savior in heaven whose heart goes out to you tonight. He has felt what it is like for God not to be there. And so keenly, so agonizingly, so bewilderingly that it wrung from him this anguished cry. So view him as your sympathizer. He feels for you. And then in the second place, in the light of all of this, let's view him as our model or our pattern. What does Jesus do in his perplexity? In his feeling, in his experience of the divine abandonment, he goes on clinging to God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't give up on God. Amid the darkness that envelops him, his soul cries out to God, you do the same. You may feel that God has abandoned you, don't you abandon him. Do you remember Jacob? I will not let you go unless you bless me. Cling on to him. For as surely as the Father heard the Savior's cry, so he will hear yours. For Jesus, this experience of being forsaken of God is an ever distant, an ever more distant memory. And one day it will be an ever more distant memory for you too. For the light will return. Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness, whether it be the darkness of sorrow or of perplexity or of depression or of doubt or of felt and feared abandonment. The light that dawned for Jesus will one day dawn for his people too. Make him your model, your pattern as you wait. There is a love on God's part that will not let you go. Let there be a faith on your part 
that will not let him go. So we are to view him as our sympathizer, feeling for us in our perplexity and in our anguish as we cry out, why? And we view him as our model, our pattern, clinging on to God no matter what. And then thirdly, and here we come to the climax of it all, view him as our saviour, as our saviour. God's people, as we have just been noting, can find themselves in very dark places. You are in a very dark place tonight, some of you I'm sure. But there is one dark place to which God's people will never go. And that is the dark place to which the wicked will go, those who forsake God, the place of separation from God forever, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why will we not go to that dark place? Because Christ has gone there for us. Now, I'm speaking to believers here, to those of you who have put your trust in the Savior. What can you say? There is no wrath of God for me. I will never be cast outside into the darkness that is reserved for the wicked. And it's not because I've somehow merited the eternal light of heaven. No, it is because I'm trusting in Christ who entered that darkness for me. We come back to our own darkness. The children of light can walk in darkness to use Isaiah's imagery. And maybe that's where you are this evening. And it's hard. But there is a depth and duration to your darkness that are severely limited. And God would say to you this evening, only so far and only for so long. And then the light will dawn and one day for eternity and all because of the darkness into which he entered on our behalf, bearing our sin, enduring the curse, exhausting in himself the punishment due so that we might be forever spared. Or think about it like this. Jesus would be no savior to us were he still in the darkness into which God plunged him for our sin. But he is not. That darkness has passed for him. And that is the note that removes the last traces of dissonance that completes the harmonization, the forsakenness is over as God planned that it would be. He emerges from this darkness, the victorious Savior. And if we are His, we will enjoy the fruits of that in the light 
and the communion and the intimacy and the blessedness of heaven forever. And it's the Savior that he will be to you, you who are as yet unconverted. I appeal to you to take with the utmost seriousness what the Bible speaks about the darkness into which those will be cast who persist in the rejection of God. And I appeal to you to take it as a symbol of eternal and immeasurable loss. And when Jesus speaks about the anguish of those who are cast into that darkness, take it seriously. But also take this to heart. There is a Savior who entered that darkness for sinners, who experienced in himself what it was to be forsaken of God, and who now comes to you in the gospel and lovingly offers to deliver you from the wrath to come and to bless you instead with eternal light, eternal joy. That is the Savior that he is to every believer here. And that is the Savior that he is willing to be to each and every one of you. You boys and girls and young people who are listening to me tonight, not yet converted, this is the Savior that he's willing to be to you, to deliver you from the darkness, to bless you instead with eternal light. Well, may it please God to draw you to him that all that he has achieved through his Calvary sufferings might begin to be yours and continue to be yours forever and ever. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we are at the very edge of revelation. And we can only peer in and see a very little. How we thank you for the things that did not change for him. How we thank you that he remained your beloved son. And how well pleased you were with him. And the Spirit was there. How we thank you that whatever it entailed for him to be the sin bearer, whatever that separation was, he was willing to endure it. That for us there might be no condemnation, no separation but your eternal friendship. Father in heaven, do grant that each and every one of us would find in this Jesus a Savior. Bless the young people who are here this evening. Everyone here not yet converted. O oh Lord Jesus, be a Savior to each and every one of them. And as you are a Savior, please, Speak most comfortingly to the hearts of those here who are in some kind of darkness 
and perhaps crying out, why? Let them know your love, your sympathy, and a deep assurance that it will only go so far and only for so long, and then it will all be over. One day over, forever and ever. What a world into which we will go when you draw us into your presence. A world of e eternal lights. Oh, grant each and every one of us here in this building together tonight would be together in that place of eternal light and eternal joy. Hear us, O oh God, we pray. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.